Thank you. Sound like something's going on out there. A little thunder going on. So <clears throat> maybe there's a little bit going on in here too. Well, we want to take our Bibles and we want to turn to the book of Job. And this is a, a big book, long book, only has one message really to it. At the end of the message, the sermon message, I'm going to share with you the one sentence message to the book of Job. Before I do that, let me read uh, from uh, a book that I found recently. And it came from a, a young lady by the name of Hillary, who was a college student. And here's what she said. I just don't believe that God of Christianity exists, said Hillary, an undergrad English major. God allows terrible suffering in the world, so he might either be an all-powerful but not good enough to end evil and suffering, or else he might be all good but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, the all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible couldn't exist. You know, we're in a series here on reconstructing our faith because it's become kind of popular out there to deconstruct your faith. And I've read a lot of stuff on the internet. And, um, you know, I go to a website and say, oh, we encourage you to do this. And I'm not saying that it's all, always a bad thing, but it has a, a negative connotation to it. And the reason for that is that a lot of the people that are encouraging us to do that have already denied the faith. They've walked away from the church, walked away from the faith. They even started, you know, ministries, if you want to call it that, to pull people out of the church as well. And as we're looking at life in general, and looking at society and the culture, a lot of the things that we believe as Christians and we believe the Bible are, are not compatible with culture. And I, I've shared this with you before, that when you have a book like the Bible that is an eternal book, in other words, it was written, the last book was written about 2,000 years ago, and so it's an older book, it, and it applies to every single generation. Well, when you have that, what's, what you're going to have is conflict you're going to have disagreement, not just with our culture, but with every culture that's ever been since the Bible times. And we've given illustrations about that before. For example, the Muslim world, uh, they look at our Bible, and they, they like the part about um, uh, judgment. They like the part about uh, doing the right thing. They like the moral part. They like when we list out the morals in the Bible and how we ought to be holy but they don't like the part about necessary love and forgiveness and the whole idea of having a relationship with God very foreign to them. Or someone out in the jungles of Africa, they, they might like the fact that we have a lot of do's and don'ts, but on the other hand, when we're asking them to forgive someone who's come into their village and pillaged their village and killed all the people in the village, very difficult for them to grasp. So when you're saying, you know, I think the culture ought to interpret the Bible, you have to ask yourself the question, what culture? Which culture? Is it the European culture, the American culture, the African culture, the Muslim culture, the 19th century culture, the 17th century culture? And you see what I'm saying. Every time you have a book, anytime you have a book that really applies to every generation everywhere, there's going to be disagreements with it. And so one of the ways uh, that they attack the faith is they ask the question, what about all the suffering in the world? And it's, to some people, it's just sort of an apologetic. They come at you and they ask you that question, and you're dumbfounded to really have any answers. But on the other hand, there are people that sincerely want to know, what about all the suffering in the world? You look at, look at Hillary's boyfriend, Rob. Here's what he has to say. This isn't a philosophical issue for me. 
says her boyfriend. This is personal. I won't believe in a God who allows suffering, even if she or it exists. He, she, or it exists. Maybe God exists. Maybe he doesn't. But he can't be trusted. Why? Well, you look at what's going on in Ukraine. Have you seen some of those pictures of all the bombings and the bodies laying everywhere? How could God allow that to happen? You've gone to some of the hospitals and maybe you visited uh, in a cancer ward and you say, how can this be allowed to happen? I remember hearing the story of Ted Turner, who some of you uh, know as kind of the uh, former owner of the Atlanta Braves, uh, CNN and uh, Time Warner. And he grew up in a church not a Baptist church and not uh, maybe an evangelical church, but he grew up in a church and he was thinking about one time being called to the ministry until his sister contracted cancer and died of cancer and, and was really kind of wasted away in cancer. And he walked away from the faith and saying, there's no way I'm going to serve a God who allow, would allow my sister to suffer in that way. He cannot possibly exist. And so even George Barna, who surveys everybody, George Barna would say, that the number one reason why people question their faith is the suffering, not only in the world, but more specifically the suffering that they're going through. So you're, you're, you're walking through the jungle. You're walking through the woods. And uh, there you are, and suddenly you hear this growling going on, some painful growling. And so you look around a tree and you see a bear caught in a trap. And you think, I can't let this bear suffer. So you go over toward him, and he growls at you. He lunges at you. And all you want to do is open up the trap to let the bear out so he can go run off and have the rest of his life. But he doesn't know that. All he knows is he's suffering. And even if you get close to him, we'll just say you're, you have you know, that, that, that thing about you with animals. And man, they, they just bow down to you, you know? And so you're over there, and you start opening up the trap. What's going to happen? It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt worse than just being in the trap. And so all he knows is he's going through a lot of pain. He doesn't know you that well, and in fact, not at all. And you're coming in to hurt him. That's all he knows, but you're trying to do good. So isn't that sort of like God sometimes, you think, maybe? He's coming in to help the situation and get us out of the trap. But all we know, we're in a lot of pain, and the more he tries to help, the more it hurts. And so as we open up the book of Job, nowhere in the Bible do we have more comfort for the believer and more questions asked for the believer and some of them answered than in the book of Job. And as we look at this book, we understand that Job is, uh, he, he's, one, I mean, he's doing great. He's, got, he's a rich guy. He's got kids. He has uh, probably grandkids. He has a great wife, or, or at least he thought he did, I guess. And then he has a lot of cattle. A lot of things going on. But here's what happens. Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered and said to the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, blameless an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now, here it looks like God's kind of trying to challenge Satan a little bit. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does God, or does Job fear God for nothing, for no reason? Have you put a hedge of thorns around him and his house 
and all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands, and you have, he has possessions and increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and said, you, In other words, the only thing you can't do is kill him. Now in verse 13, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And then came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And on and on it goes. He loses on every single verse. Finally, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came into my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And he goes on to say in verse 10 of chapter 2, You speak as one of those who foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And you shall not receive evil. In all this, Job did not sin, even with his lips. And you know, you read that passage and you say, Well, boy, that's not me. I've sinned with my lips before. I've had bad attitudes before. God came to me in something like that, man. We would have a, you know, that, that come to Jesus moment, and he'd be having to come to me and rebuke me because of all the thoughts that were going through my head. So what do we learn from this passage? We ask ourselves the question, why does God even allow evil and suffering in the world? I think that's a legitimate question. You know, he's an all-loving, all-purposeful, all-powerful God. There's nothing God can't do, and yet he loves you. I, re- I remember my, uh, a really good friend of mine um, lost his mother, and um, really was serving the Lord very, very strongly before that. And he's back serving him now. But his, his mother lost her life, and she lost her, her mind first. My dad is going through Alzheimer's later stages, uh, latter stages, and she was doing the same and responding much worse than my dad is responding. And so she became a different person altogether. Finally, she passed away. And I remember uh, on vacation, we were uh, visiting together and talking, and I was just listening to what he had to say. And here's what he said. He said, God may be my father, my heavenly father, but I guarantee you, I treat my kids a lot better than he treats his. Boy, that was, that's pretty tough. I, maybe that's something I, like I would think. Maybe I wouldn't say it. But nowadays, we're having people to say these things, and, and they're unabashed about saying them, the things that they only thought of before. Well, what happened to Job? Why does God allow evil and suffering? Look what happened to Job. He lost his oxen in verse 14, sheep and servants in verse 16, camels in 17, children in 19, his health in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, the loyalty of his wife. She said, why don't you just curse God and die? And the comfort of his friends. Three friends came along and said, you know, Job, your problem is you've got to have sin in your life like this. And all this, God says, no, I never said that at all. So God, but remember this, uh, and this is a comforting word, I think. In chapter 1, verse 10, he says, you put a hedge of thorns around him. Now, we don't know all about this story. We, we know that, okay, it happened once. Do I think this happens all the time? No. Do I think it happens maybe occasionally? Not to this extent, but yes. And so it looks like they're having a bet. looks like they're having a wager that's going on. But God is doing something in Job's life 
that nothing else could do except for the trials that he was going through. And so I take comfort in the fact that God's put a hedge of thorns around us as believers and really as non-believers oftentimes as well. And if he were to take that hedge of thorns away from us, this is what would happen. These kind of things would happen in our life. So God is protecting us. But the logic goes, the logical, there's an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God. Can't he allow, why does he allow suffering and evil? Can't he make it go away? And why did he create it in the first place? Let me share with you some logical things as well as scriptural things that help me. Uh, first of all, evil is not a thing to be created. Evil is a lack. It's an emptiness. We have lights in this room, and uh, basically we could probably cover up all these doors back here and windows and cut off the lights. What would happen? There would be darkness. And that's why the Bible compares evil to being dark. It's a cutting off of the good. It's a cutting off of the evil. If you cut off the lights from a room, it turns dark. You cut off the light of God, the righteousness of God from a life, it becomes evil. And so evil is a lack. It's not so much a thing. Then we have the problem of free will. Free will. And so somebody comes along and, and, and they're tempted and God gives us a choice. Here's what it says in Genesis 2. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will not eat. For in the same day you eat, you're going to die. There, there's going to be a darkness there. There's going to be an evil there. And so here's what's happening. God created us to have a loving relationship with him. Love demands a choice. Some of you, uh, one or two of you, are about ready to get married, just got married. And, uh, and so uh, you, who would come along to their, uh, their spouse-to-be and say, you know, uh, I think you ought to marry me, and yeah, I really don't want to. <laughs> no, you have to. You know, you have to. No, love demands that we have choices involved. You know, we're not, God has not made robots. And so love demands a choice, and therefore, since we have a choice, there is always a potential for sin. There's always that potential to make the wrong choice and to, to, uh, to have evil in our life. The Bible says that we are all have propensity to evil. It says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as though one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so the evil then that we have produces the suffering in the world. Why do we have suffering in the world? Why is there all that suffering in Ukraine? You say, well, it's the sin of Putin. I mean, it's Russia. There's sin. Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, why do we have um, shootings in Buffalo? A shooting. It's sin. It's evil. Sin. Why do we have a, a shooting out in California the same week? It's sin. Why did you get bullied in school, perhaps, when you were growing up? It's sin. Why, would you, why were you treated unfairly somehow in school? I mean, really unfairly. No, it's sin. We can look at everything that we've done, and, and we come back to that thing, same thing. It's the evil in the world. Now, sometimes it's our fault. Somebody, uh, Boom Boom Bansini, which some of you have never heard of, I'm sure, but he's a middleweight boxer, very accomplished one at that. And he was in the ring, and he hit a guy so hard he killed him. Killed him in the ring. You can look that up. He killed him in the ring. And he was in the locker room crying. And he was saying, why me? Why me? Now, never mind that he killed somebody. He was asking the question, why me? Well, he's the one that threw the punch. 
Or a teenage girl getting pregnant, and she says, well, why me? Well, there's a reason behind that. So sometimes it's what we do, but sometimes it's just life is filled with sin around us, and we're affected by other people's sin. I mean, is it really fair for you to be driving down the road, and a drunk driver runs a stoplight and crashes into you and T-bones you? That's just not fair. You didn't do anything for that. But is life really fair? Philip Yancey tells a story in Disappointed with God, the book, Disappointed with God, um, about interviewing people. And he came across this guy. He just thought, really, this guy is just going to really spew all kinds of madness because of what's happened to him. Douglas was his name. His wife, it all started when his wife got breast cancer. And she went through all the, the chemo and had um, a vasectomy. And when it, it went into recession for a while. But during this time, they also had a car accident. And his daughter was safe and his wife was okay. But he hit his head on the steering wheel. And it, it caused eyesight damage where he was in vertigo all the time. He had to wear special glasses for it. Um, he had headaches all the time. And so he's going through all this. And then his wife's cancer had come back with aggression. And so Philip Yancey interviews him for the book, thinking that, okay, here's another example of what I just read a few moments ago of someone being bitter with God. But he said, no, I'm not bitter at all. It's not God's fault. And he goes on to really, he said, give him a lesson in spiritual maturity. And he said this, and it really caught me. He said, life's not fair. But the problem that we make is that we think, okay, since, since God is supposed to be fair, and life is unfair, then God must be unfair. He says, God's not life. God is not life. Here's a guy with a perspective because he's, he's come to a place in his life because somehow, some way, he's gotten closer to God than he's ever been before, and he sees God in a different way than most of us cannot possibly see him. And so we look at the book of Job, and we ask ourselves the question, Why doesn't God stop the evil in the world? Look what he says in verse 21 again. Naked I came in from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this he didn't sin. He said, well, there there it is right there. Why God ought to just come to him and said, look, you know, you've responded so well to me. I'm going to let it go, and I'm going to declare a win. That's what it's all about. It's not, but he could have. And uh, put Satan in his place, and, and there you go. Job was crying out to God. And you say, well, how, why do bad things happen to good people in, in the first place? Well, here's the problem. The Bible says in Romans that no one is righteous. There's not even one. There's no one that is good. And so, get the picture for just a moment. We're going to say, okay, God, my prayer is, is that you will destroy evil and suffering in the world. Okay, how is he going to do that? There's only two ways that you can do it. Only two ways. Number one, you get rid of evil. Or number two, you get rid of free will. Now, the free will part of it, you know, I would love for the mass murderers to be their free will taken away, but I don't want my free will taken away. Do you want your free will taken away? You see, it always works where I want somebody else's, somebody that's doing something worse than me. I want their free will taken away, but not mine. 
You say, well, then he ought to just eradicate evil. The problem is I'm filled with it. I'm filled with sin. You know, my, my mind, my attitude, your, your mind, your attitudes, your, sometimes your actions that maybe you're even blind to. How would he have to, he'd have to destroy me. See, that's the whole point of heaven. You die, you leave all the sin behind, you go to a place where there is no sin, and we live there forever without sin. This isn't heaven. He'd have to destroy every single person on the face of the earth. Because once sin through Adam infected the human race, it was here to stay. It's like, you know, as many people say, like a cancer that's growing up. You say, well, I don't see any reason for suffering at all. No reason whatsoever. You know, I'm, maybe the, I am the bear in the bear trap, and God's come along and trying to get me closer to him and get to know him better because the more I know him, the closer I am to him spiritually. Maybe he's trying to do something good, but man, I just don't see it. I don't see what God's doing. Dennis Covington said this, mystery is not the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning that we can comprehend. Just because I don't understand it does not mean there's not a purpose behind it. There's a meaning behind every single thing that I'm going through. And so why doesn't God stop evil and suffering? He'd have to stop me. So what are some of the reasons maybe for, for what Job was going through, what we go through? Surely there's a, there's a plumb bomb in our life. There's sin in our life sometimes. God says, look, I've got your attention now through some suffering. Here's the thing I'm I'm pointing to. Or he may say, you know, it's not so much of a specific sin. You've just gotten me off the throne of your life. Let me get your attention. And it's put right back on God. Or it could just be maturity. Uh, Excuse me. James says this. James 1 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various temptations and trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let the endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously without reproach, and it shall be given him. And so he's saying, look, there's some wisdom that has to take place. When you know that you're going through something, and you don't even know why, well, the wisdom dictates that maybe you find out why, but maybe sometimes, like Job, you never know why. We come to the end of the book here in just a moment, and we realize that Job never, God never told Job why he went through what he went through. He never knew that we know of, in the whole, at least in the whole story. I remember um, coming to one of those plumb bob times in my life, probably the thing in my life, the one event, the one event that helped me grow in the Lord and see life from a different perspective than anything else. I was, I was uh, at Coal Falls College, and um, it was kind of the beginning, not really the beginning, middle, middle I'd say I'm a senior year, my fourth senior year. That was, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I was senior year, and I was playing basketball, and uh, I was coming down the court. Now, we had one of those rubber floors, you know, and you didn't need good tennis shoes on a rubber floor because you stopped on a dime, and so I was, I had this guy in front of me on a fast break, and I cut around him, and when I did, my ankle folded over so much that the side of my ankle was on the floor, hit the floor, and I know that's kind of gross, but it was gross. And my, my legs got swollen from the knee down about this much. It grows, you know, over the years. You know, it grows bigger and bigger. 
But it was so bad that I had to keep it up all the time to manage the pain. Worst pain I've ever had in my life when all that blood rushed down to my foot. And so I had to keep it elevated. So I was out of, of, uh, of school uh, for three weeks. And I was in danger. If it wasn't for the special dispensation, I would have failed because I didn't go to class enough. And I was in the dorm for most of that time. And finally, uh, I talked to my parents, and they were on the phone, so I, I, I told them what was going on. And they, they came up about an hour away, and so they just came up and got me and brought me home because I was getting, becoming a burden to my roommate and my friends. And so I was sitting there at home, and I was belly aching to God. It wasn't like Job at all. I was just telling God how much I'd served him, how much I just wanted to get out of school, and now I'm going I'm to have to fail these courses or incompletes, and then I'm going to have to go in the summer or maybe in the fall and Wow, you know, and um, I just, you know, I'm in all this pain, and, you know, don't you care about me? I was going through the whole thing. I got a phone call. And one of the things I left out of the story, I guess, is I was interim pastor. Interim, you know, temporary, looking for somebody else. And they needed somebody to preach for them. So I was interim pastor of Webb's Creek Baptist Church, wonderful church in Homer, Georgia. And if you've ever been there, don't blink your eyes. So uh, in Homer, Georgia... And they called me up on the phone and said, uh, Brother Dwayne, we have found our pastor, but we want you to come back for one more Sunday because we want to send you, uh, have a picnic, and we're going to have a big send-off for you. And, uh, and he just kept talking and talking, and I just said, just get, just get finished. Get finished talking so I can tell you no. And I just listened. And finally, he, he said, what about it? Can you come this Sunday? And I said, sure, I'd love to. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. To this day, I don't know where it came from. But, but God himself. And so uh, I'll come back to the story in just a moment, moment. And I think why I responded the way I did. But all this suffering that I went through, I realized that God was the king of it all. And I, I made a turn in my life at that point. Because up to that point, I felt like deep down, probably in my subconscious mind, if I complained to God enough and whined enough, I'd get my way. And he let me know in no uncertain terms that was never going to happen again. I made a big turn, a maturity in my life. We look at Job 38, and we find out God shows up. God shows up in a big way, and he's rebuking the friends for saying that um, he was in sin, and he uh, doesn't defend himself. He says, this is what's going on, because I'm God. And he goes on to say in chapter 38, let me just read a couple of verses to you. He says, um, in chapter 38, when he shows up, he asks some questions himself. Where were you when, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? And just to let you know, at this point, after many, many times, Job is whining. Didn't speak against God, but he just whined. And so did his friends. Verse 8, or who shut at the sea with the doors when it burst out from the womb? When were the clouds in garment and thick darkness in swaddling band? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked on the recesses of the deep? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. God just shows up and said, look, you, you need to understand something. I love you, but I'm God. I'm God and not you. 
And so we come to the message of the book. And here's the message. God is enough. You say, well, that's not the message. Couldn't be. I was in seminary class when I first heard that. Dr. Kent's Old Testament class. We were going through survey of the Old Testament. We came to the book of Job. Everybody was asking questions. He said, I want to tell you, the theme to the whole book, the message of the whole book, though he slay me, it says, yet will I trust in him. Even if he slays me, I will trust in him. He said, the message of the book is God is enough. Somebody raise their hand. Well, wait a minute. I know the Bible says he's going to take care of us and he's going to protect. What about this promise? God is enough. God is enough. Like, this, like the song by Mercy Me, even if. Even if. We burn in the fire, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. We're still going to worship God. And he brings us to this point in life. You say, well, how, how did you get through the ankle thing and all that? I had, I had listened to a message. I'd, I'd been up north, and uh, up in Indiana, Illinois, and I had the privilege of hearing a, a, a pastor. And he gave this little story. And he said this. He said, Amos was the keeper of sycamore fruit. Okay, I read that in the Bible. So what's the deal? And he said, sycamore fruit were, were sold on uh, like a kiosk. We call kiosks today out in the middle of a marketplace. And you go and pick it up. And you took a spoon and you, you struck it. Why did you do that? Because the sycamore fruit is very bitter. Okay. It's, it's, it's sour, really, sour. It's not ripe. So what do you have to do? You have to beat it with a spoon and bruise it. And if you eat it right away, it's sweet. But if you wait, it grows bitter. So it's not ripe. You hit it with a spoon, you bruise it, and eat it right away. And all I could think about is I was on that phone. I've been bruised. Am I going to wait or am I going to get up and serve God right now? And I just had to say yes. And from that time, you don't want to talk about in, in these terms, but you know what I'm saying in the, in the context. I became sweeter. I became closer to God and not unusable. And so... Job is faced with this, this task. John Stott maybe put it best when he said this. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have to turn away. And in my imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, Mouth dry and intolerable thirst, plunged into a forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings became 
more manageable in light of his. There's still a question mark about human suffering. Moreover, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. What is God saying here? He's saying, look, as we said last week, we talk about prayers not being answered and Bruce Almighty, the movie, where he just, yes, 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 every prayer and the chaos it caused. And we said then, what we need is someone over the universe with tremendous, unquestionable wisdom. And we look to the scripture and we get to know God through it, experiencing life with him and through the word of God. And we say, oh, he's an all-wise God. I can trust him. He can. He's capable. He will. He loves me enough. But also, he's wise enough to always do the right thing by me. Is there still a question of suffering? I suppose there is. Especially the individual that goes through what they go through. But as we said on Sunday, we are like the Normandy soldier on the ground. We look around at all the death and all the sufferings that we're going to lose. We're not the pilot that's flying in the air looking down and seeing the carnage, but looking at the beaches and the Marines coming in and the bombs coming in and, and the planes coming in. And he looks at his co-pilot and said, we're going to win. God is the one that's looking from above. And we get his mind in us the way we are in Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 2. We can see life more from his perspective. I pray that you would do that. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the word of God. And we thank you, Lord, for how Job teaches us so many things and only a few things we could get to tonight. But, Lord, we know that you're enough, that we can trust you, that you love us. We know that you loved us because you went to the cross for us. You took on our pain with us. You know what that pain's like. You know what that suffering's like. And we know that in our world, because there's evil, there's just going to be suffering, and sometimes it looks meaningless but we know that there's somehow there's meaning behind it in your wisdom. So help us to trust you. Help us to put our faith in you and knowing that the most important thing about us is what we believe about you and, and trusting in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.